I'm sure a number of you have seen the classic World War II movie called Saving Private Ryan. I think it's a fitting illustration for this Veterans Day weekend, even though it's not why I chose it. Um, in the movie, the movie is about Private Ryan. Private Ryan is the fourth son of Mrs. Ryan, who's, who has sent all four of her sons to war, and she finds out via the War Department, that three of her sons have already been killed in war. And so the War Department decides that they do not want her to lose her fourth son in this same war. Uh, So they decide to send someone, a group of soldiers, a unit, to go and bring Private Ryan home. The problem is Private Ryan was an airborne trooper who parachuted in to Normandy on the day on the day before D-Day, and like many others of his group, he got lost, uh, separated from his his company, his overshot his landing zone, and was in the middle of nowhere, and no one knew where he was. Um, they had some ideas, but they couldn't get a hold of him. So they task Captain John Miller, who with his unit stormed the beaches of Normandy to go into and behind enemy lines to find Private Ryan and bring him home. Uh, it's, quite a, a, it's a great movie. Uh, it's not one for little children. It's definitely a rated R movie, but it, is, it shows the horrors of war and the uh, dynamics of brotherhood that is built among soldiers. When they find Saving Private Ryan, He's with a group of soldiers who have kind of banded together. They were not part of the same unit to defend this one particular town in France and the bridge in that town that the Nazis were going to try and take. And he refuses, when he finds out that the War Department is going to send him home, he refuses to leave the men that he's been fighting next to. And he says, I'm not going. If you want me to come with you, you have to stay and fight with us, and once we protect this bridge and the Nazis are gone, I will go home. And so the unit, Captain John Miller and his his soldiers, decide to stay and fight. As in the, through the midst of the battle, a number of those men die, and one of the last men to die in that battle is John, Captain John Miller. In the last, one of the last scenes of the movie, Saving Private Ryan is standing over or kneeling next to Uh, Captain Miller, as he is dying. And in his last breath, he grabs Saving Private Ryan's vest, pulls him close, and says, earn this. Earn it. Earn what we've done for you. And then he dies. It's it's catching. The the very next scene is is an an older Private Ryan standing at Captain John Miller's graveside on the beaches of Normandy. And he's standing there by himself with his family in the distance. And he says, you know, he says, I brought my family with me. And then he says, I hope that I have earned what you did for me. I hope that I've lived well enough to earn this. And his wife comes up to him to check on him and and see if he's okay. And he turns to her and he says, tell me I lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. 
the burden of the life saved was what he, his life saved. And the lives that were de- died were taken to save his life is a burden that he carried his entire rest of his life. What a burden to carry. What burdens do you carry? Our text this morning is one that is well known by most of us probably. It's a text of comfort and reassurance. Jesus' famous words, Come to me all who are, who are weary and burdened, as the NIV says. We all know these words, or most of us know these words very well, know them to our hearts and find comfort in them. As we get started, I want to share with you just the context of our passage this morning. It comes at the end of chapter 11 in Matthew. There's a lot that goes on before, but right directly before in verses 20 through 24, Jesus stops what he's doing and pronounces woe on three cities. The city of Chorazin, the city of Bethsaida, and the city of Capernaum. And he says the reason why he pronounces this woe, this statement of judgment, is that because, is because they, have, they are unrepentant. They have chosen not to repent. Jesus had done, as he says, the mighty works of God in their midst, and they did not repent. And so he pronounces woe on them. And then the very next verse, in verse 25, he switches to something much different. He switches to a prayer. The, the text says, at that time, Jesus declared... So he went from pronouncing woe on these cities to declaring, or I would actually say he's he's praying because he he speaks to his Father in heaven. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Jesus prays to his heavenly Father. And his prayer is a very specific prayer. It's a prayer of thanksgiving thanking his father for something very specific. But first we have to notice that in the prayer, Jesus refers to his heavenly father as the, fa- of, as, excuse me, as the Lord of heaven and earth. This is actually the only place in the, Ma- the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus refers to his heavenly father as Lord of heaven and earth. And as we'll see later, that is a significant title that, that Jesus uses. In this prayer, he's not just thanking his Father, though. He is also teaching his disciples by declaring a specific characteristic of God, which is his sovereignty. He declares by saying, Lord of heaven and earth, and by, saying that, and by declaring that God is the one who has chosen to hide these things from the wise and understanding and to reveal them to the little children, that God, in fact, the Father in heaven, is sovereign. He is sovereign and can choose to reveal things to whomever he pleases. He acts sovereignly in hiding these things that Jesus is talking about. But what is it that God has hidden from the wise and understanding and revealed to the little children? It is the riches of the good news of the kingdom, it's the gospel. God has hidden from the eyes of the wise and understanding 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus saves. Jesus, the man, our Messiah, who went and did the mighty works of God in these three cities, who then decided not to repent, is the man who is proclaiming the gospel. Jesus is proclaiming the gospel, and God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to hide that from the wise and the understanding. But he has revealed it to the little children. The wise in our passage are those, possibly Jesus is thinking of those in the cities that he's pronounced woe on, but also those who are probably in his midst who think that they know all the answers, that they have all of the solutions, that they've lived a good life and don't need forgiveness for, and repentance for sins. The wise are those who think that they are righteous according to the law, who look down on the weak and the poor because they think that they're better, because they think that they've worked harder, because they think that they have earned the blessings and the riches that they have all on their own. The wise and the understanding are those who neglect the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord and cannot see their need for repentance. The little children, however, are those young and old who do recognize their need, who see that they have a need for a great Savior and humble themselves and look to Christ. In this passage, Jesus divides humanity into two groups. He calls them the wise and understanding and the little children. It's important that we ask ourselves, which group do I belong to? And I will make it a little bit more simple. The proud or the humble? Which group do I belong to? As I was preparing this sermon and thinking about this idea of being willing to cry out to God for, for help for, in repentance, for salvation. It made me think of, of my son Paxson, who, as he, every day, as little children do, as toddlers do, becomes more and more independent. And he loves to do things on his own. Yesterday, I walked into the kitchen, and he was helping Rachel sweep the floor and he had the end of the broomstick in his mouth and he was pushing the broom across the kitchen floor with his mouth. But hey, he was helping. And it's, and it's the sweetest thing to see. He likes to pick up recyclables off the floor and put them in the recycling bin. He likes to do the things that we ask him to do and, and we are treasuring this time. But one thing also that he really has no problem doing is that when he cannot do something himself, he has no problem crying out to mom or dad for help. That, ah, kind of, you know, desperate, desperate, I don't know what to do, cry, and reaching his hands up to the person who's closest to him, he knows he can trust and who will help him whenever he cries out. That is the picture that Jesus is painting here when he says the little children, children who know that they're dependent, who know that they need help, who know that they cannot rely on their own strength. But then you have myself. I also love to do things by myself, undo, do them on my own. 
But I hate to ask for help. When I get doing, start doing something and I have a hard time with it and feel like I can't do it, the last thing I'm going to do is cry out to someone else for help and let them see me in my weakness and do it for me. It's because of my pride. I can't allow another person see me being weak. That is the picture of the wise and understanding that Jesus is painting here. Those who refuse to see their need for repentance, their need for a Savior, and refuse to cry out to Him even in their greatest hour of need. But the prayer does not end there either. Jesus goes on to declare something else, which is quite significant as well. Jesus Jesus says that this choosing to reveal or hide is part of God's gracious will. It's His gracious will that He chooses to hide these things from the wise and understanding and to reveal them to the little children. How can this be gracious? First, it's obvious because it is God's will that it's not arbitrary. He in His own sovereignty can choose to do whatever He pleases. And He can choose to reveal to whomever He pleases the riches of His gospel. But also, it's it's gracious in the fact that no one, not one of us, as Paul says, is righteous. And no one deserves salvation or forgiveness or the ability to even cry out to God in repentance. And the fact that God in His sovereignty reveals the gospel, the riches of His kingdom to even just the little children means that He is gracious. He is our gracious and loving Heavenly Father. In verse 27, Jesus moves on. And there's a transition here. And He begins to establish His own authority. He says, All things have been handed over to Me. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the, fa- the Son chooses to reveal Him. Here is that title, where that title from verse 25 comes into, he takes on even more significance. Jesus is saying here that the Lord of heaven and earth, His heavenly Father, has now handed over all things to Him. Jesus, the Lord, the heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, has given Jesus authority. And as we, as we see, as we read in verse, at the end of verse 27, he has even given Jesus the authority that he has taken, that the authority to hide and to reveal. The Heavenly Father in verse 25, who Jesus gives thanks to for hiding and revealing such things as the riches of the kingdom, now has given that authority to his son Jesus Christ. Which makes me think of a similar passage in in John where Jesus declares a similar, makes a similar statement. In John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. 
what he's saying here in Matthew 11 and what he was saying in John chapter 10. It's, I and the Father are one. The will of the Father is the will of the Son. And the will of the Son is the will of the Father. Jesus has the authority now, as he declares, to hide things from the wise and understanding and to reveal them to the little children. He is participating in the gracious will of his heavenly Father. And he goes on in verse 27 to, to explain or outline the father-son relationship. I, was, I say it's an outline because it doesn't go into great detail, but he does give us a few very important things to understand. He says, again, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This knowing that Jesus, the word knowing, or no one knows, this idea of knowing that Jesus is speaking of, is not about head knowledge or intellect. It's a relational term. He's talking about relational knowledge. No one knows the Father or the Son like the Son or the Father. Likewise, it's, it's kind of like where John in chapter 10, Jesus says, in chapter 10 of John, Jesus says, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. They know him relationally, intimately. My son Paxson, he knows my voice. Not because he has some great intelligence, although he is pretty smart, but because he knows me as his father, the relationship, this knowledge of relation. And that's the knowledge that Jesus is talking about. The intimate relationship between the Father, the Heavenly Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, and His Son, Jesus Christ. So intimate that not only does the Father have the authority to choose whom to reveal things to and whom to hide them from, but the Son also has that authority. That is how intimate and united the Father and Son are. And in that relationship, and in that authority that Jesus has, he declares that I'm the one that brings you to God. He says, no one knows the Father except, of, except whom those that I choose to reveal him to. Right? Jesus says, I'm the one that shows you the gospel, that will open your eyes to see the truth of who God is and what he has done. It is Jesus who brings you to God. And he says so, again, we go back to John. Such a great book, both of these. John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus declares, not only does he have the authority to to hide and to reveal, but he has the ability and the desire to bring you to God to reveal God to you so that you can repent and be saved. And he follows this pronouncement of his authority with a gracious call. Verses 28 through 30, the verses that we all know and cling to even in times of great trial. He says, Come to me, All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, this come to me is a relational call. Jesus is calling those who are weary and heavy laden to come and know him. The NIV says weary and burdened instead of uh, labor and heavy laden. I think weary paints a, a little bit of a better picture, in my opinion, of who Jesus is talking to. He's not talking to the wise and understanding who think they have it all together, who think they do not need rest, who think they can do it on their own. He's talking to the little children who are at the point of desperation and crying out because they know they can't do this on their own. They can't earn their salvation. They can't even get to the end of the day on their own because the burdens that they carry are too heavy. That is who Jesus is calling to. The little children. He says, come to me. And it's not just a calling to come to him, but it's an invitation. An invitation to take on his yoke and his burden. An invitation to share in the work of his kingdom and take off the yokes that we carry and place on our own backs that do us no good, that weigh us down, that bring us to the point where we are weary and burdened. Jesus is inviting us to take those burdens and those yokes off and to take on his. But what is a yoke? In this area of the country, except for maybe Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we probably don't see too many yokes around here anymore. Yoke is an agricultural device that was used to hitch two two oxes together so they could plow a field or pull a cart and work in the same direction and split the difference of the load. The yoke was a solid piece of wood that was curved and it had two curves in the middle, on the, on the side, excuse me, that would fit nicely over the back of an ox's neck. And so that piece of wood would sit on the back of the ox's neck and then there would be a wooden or metal U-shaped bracket that would go up underneath the ox's neck and attach to the yoke so that the ox was securely fastened to that yoke. And you would put two oxes together under one yoke and they would carry a load in one direction and sharing that load. The yoke did not necessarily make the load any lighter, but it did make the work more efficient by allowing these two oxen to to go to work together in the same direction. Uh, There also are other uses for yokes. One of them is in a canoe. And maybe you've seen a yoke in a canoe. The yoke in a canoe is that bar that stretches from side to side across the middle of the canoe lengthwise. It's got that curved indentation on there. 
That's what, a yoke, that's what the yoke is. And the yoke on, in a canoe is, is there so that you can actually, one person can actually carry the, the canoe by himself, him or herself, on their shoulders. And though I lived and grew up in New Hampshire on or near a farm my whole life, I never actually got to see a yoke used. In the, in, I never, we didn't have oxen. We never plowed our fields with uh, an animal-powered plow. We had tractors, and at least when I was alive, that's how they did it. So I never got to see a yoke used in the traditional sense. But I did actually get to use a yoke one time when I was on a canoeing trip in college. My Gordon College has a program called La Vida, and you go into the upstate New York, and you spend a couple weeks out in the wilderness, and the trip that I did is part of that time we spent five days on a canoe trip in the Saranac Lakes region. And every day we would canoe across or up or down a lake, down a river, get to another body of water, and canoe that. And we did that for five days, sleep camping at night. Um, and every time we got to the end of a body of water, we had to do what was called a portage. A portage is when you carry your canoe across dry land. Um, typically, they were short portages, but one day we had one really long one that was over a mile. And when we had a portage, what you would do is you, your, part, your canoe partner and yourself, you would take your packs out of the canoe, put them on your back, then you would stand by the canoe and you would pick it up, flip it over, and rest it on your shoulders and on your pack, and you would carry that, the two of you would carry the canoe from point A to point B across dry land. Problem, this day, the day when we had the portage that was over a mile long, my partner and myself were not very well matched. My partner was much smaller than myself. And when we lifted up the canoe, we couldn't get the weight distributed properly. And we walked about 50 yards or so and the weight of the canoe was, was so heavy and bearing down on our shoulders that we really didn't, we couldn't go any further. And so we tried a couple of different things in adjusting the weights of our packs and everything, but nothing worked. And so we, were at a, we had a problem. We had to get from point A to point B. And we had to do it relatively quickly because we had to get to our campsite at the other end of this second lake. So I decided that I would go ahead and carry the canoe by myself. I would lift the canoe up, put it on my shoulders using the yoke, and I would leave my bag there and come back for it once I was done. And no one else had any other ideas, so that's what we did. I threw it up on my shoulders, and I started going, and the yoke, it did its job. It helped me balance the weight of the canoe very well. Um, it helped me, helped me go, keep going. I got to the end of that mile-long portage, and it was a different story. I could barely walk. I was so tired. The canoe itself weighed probably 70 to 90 pounds. And we got to the point where even though the yoke helped me distribute the weight properly, it didn't reduce the rate of the weight of the burden. And that burden did what a, that weight does what weight does when it's working with gravity. It weighs you down. And it wore me down to the point where I could not turn around and go back and get my bag. The burden that was on my shoulders was too heavy for me to really carry on my own and actually be effective and helpful for the rest of my team. The yoke that Jesus is talking about in this passage is a yoke that is light and easy. It's not like the yoke that I was talking about. And it's not like the yoke or the burdens 
that we carry each day. In Scripture, Jesus, uh, in Scripture, the Old Testament, the, the image of yoke is used quite often to, resent, to signify bondage or slavery to sin or to a foreign king. Yoke in Scripture, for the most part, there are some positive uses like here in chapter 11. The yoke and burden are, are bad things or negative things. And so we have to ask ourselves, what burdens, what yoke is Jesus asking us to take off? What is he asking us to lay down and put aside? Well, I think he's asking lots of for lots of things, really. He's asking us to put down the burden of not just the bad things in our lives, but the good things as well. We carry burdens for the good things in life that when we repl- when we place them in the wrong place in terms of our priorities, they become overwhelming burdens. Maybe you're carrying the burden of worrying about how you're going to pay next month's bills. Maybe you're carrying a burden concerning social, your social recognition and appearances. Whether or not you should go to this certain party or this meeting or to that march. What are people going to think about you if you don't go? What are people going to think about you if you do go? Maybe you're carrying the burden of worrying about straight A's. Maybe you're a student and you stay up late at night trying to study and cram so that you can get straight A's. But really what you're doing is making yourself sick and depressed. Maybe you're a parent who is worried about your kids' straight A's. And you're laying up late at night worrying about your kids' tests the next day or how they're going to into getting into college, or how you're going to pay for it. These are not inherently bad things to worry about. But when they, when they consume us, when they take on the, major, the, the majority of our focus and our mind's perception, they become overwhelming burdens. And that's just the good things in our lives. We also carry the burdens of our sins. We carry the burdens of sins, of habitual sins that we can't seem to let go of, that we can't walk away from, that we can't turn around and turn away from. We can't let go of the guilt and shame, possibly, of past sins. Maybe you still beat yourself up for the things you've done in your past. Maybe you're trying to prove to God that you deserve the salvation He offers you. Maybe you're trying to earn it. These things, these pressures, these burdens in our lives are the things that weigh us down. These are the things that make us weary. Bring us to the point where we can't go any further. And if you're at that point, if you're longing for relief from these burdens, then it's Jesus. Jesus is calling to you. You are the one he's calling to. He's calling you to take off your yokes and the burdens that wear you down and to take on his yoke, which is easy, and his burden, which is light. Christ's burden is best. The yoke of Christ is his word. And his burden is the new life he gives to all who believe. 
But how can this be? How can I give up all of my baggage and in exchange receive new life and salvation? And the answer is because Jesus, in all actuality, in, in true and truly, has already carried your board, burdens for you. The burdens that you still carry, that you still hold on your backs, that weigh you down, Christ has already carried for you to the cross. And He's done so in order to set you free from that bondage. The burden Jesus offers you is light because it is new life in Him. And He will never tell you that you're not good enough. He'll never shame you for your sins. He'll never badmouth you to your friends. And He'll never turn His back on you. Because He can't. Because He won't. Because He loves you. Jesus calls you to take on His yoke and His burden is to believe that what He has already done, He has done for you on the cross. And He continues to do for you until He returns. He carried your burdens to the cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus was crucified for your sin and your shame. He endured the cowardice and rejection of His friends. He was forsaken on the cross by His Heavenly Father so that you would never have to know another day of separation from God. He suffered the wrath of God so that you would, never, so you would have the blessings of God's steadfast love and faithfulness instead. Now exalted in glory, He sits on the throne and He intercedes on your behalf before the Father, praying for you. Jesus has carried your burdens already to the cross. And when He calls you and says, come, take on my yoke, take on my burden, let go of those that you are carrying, He says so because He's already carried them for you. If you are feeling weary this morning from all of your striving and all of your sin, then Jesus is calling you to Himself. Take on his yoke and take on his burden because he has taken yours. Receive the salvation and new life that he has died to give and secure for you. Brothers, sisters, friends who have not put their faith in Christ yet, those who are weary and burdened, Jesus is calling you to come to me. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you great praise, for you are the Lord of heaven and earth, and you are gracious in all that you do, and your will is perfect and pleasing. And Father, we also thank you that you are gentle and lowly in heart, and you receive those of us who are weak and weary and burdened down by our sins in the everyday life. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us in this room. That you give us the faith to trust you and to cry out to you in repentance. 
for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation you freely offer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.